0: for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Here at Power Athlete, we like to throw around the term peaking namely when we're describing Luke's pinnacle of athletic performance in high school. But the fact of the matter is that we are all in some capacity striving towards success. This week, Anders Ericsson, author of the very popular book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, explains how quickly we dismiss our own abilities in the absence of any real training. As he explains, experts, virtuosos, and the elite are not that different from you and I. They just put in the proper work and have sought out the best available training imagine that be forewarned there are a few audio issues here and there from our long connection to Anders but I promise it will not detract from the conversation here it is episode 296
1: All right, Nation.
2: what's happening it's another friday Needs to come in and work on the weekend, that'd be great. That's a Lumberg impression. Oh,
3: oh, yeah, no, I wasn't catching Office the space. that. Very transactional. I just you. thought that was you all week at work, so you didn't have to come in on the weekend. Yeah. Week. <sighs> this is probably going to take me four to seven weeks. You don't need, want me to ask yeah. to do this, even though I can probably do it in 20 minutes, but I'm going to pretend like it's really, really long.
2: need you to go ahead and come in on the weekend. Just kidding. It's another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength. And, and
3: <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, I never knew you had a lisp. I suffering attach. Find
2: it here and there. It just kind of happens, you know. But big day today. Big day. We got big things coming up this weekend. Number one, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, kicking the doors in Super Bowl. Uh, do we got any, any predictions? I'm think I'm I'm on. I'm, I'm cheering Pat's. You're going Pat's. I just I guess. <sighs> I'm not, I'm, I don't really I like am, them. Tom Brady's. I'm rooting for the. Seems Pats, pretty cool. But I have this
3: weird feeling that the Rams are going to win.
2: Yeah, I just hope it's. I mean, it's it, it's bound to be a good game, right?
3: You would uh, hope. Normally, Super Bowls are awful. Usually, mm-hmm. the the AFC NFC championship games are like these epic battles, and then the Super Bowl is past, just like. Dude, I don't know. Past four or five years, pretty pretty. Yes, yeah, awesome. big plays. Right, like, but I got a feeling this year is going to be pretty tight. I think the Patriots are going to come out like and just beat the. Breaks off them early, and I think the Rams are going to rally at the very end and somehow pull it out. Uh, I'm rooting for the Rams solely, in spite of one of my friends. That's it.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. And you know what? You have a stronger case than I do. Yeah, so South I'm like, Boston fool. Like ba- so like so you got right a buddy now. who's
4: who's a big Patriots fan. Literally, the six six asshole you met in your backyard. All right.
2: So hang on. Yeah. I might be no I might be rooting for le- the Rams. I don't yeah. know. Now, nah, see, you could tell I'm really not fucking wed to this. Nah. Around.
3: I mean, I, I I like Tom and uh, uh, like the fact that he when they asked him, they're like, is there a chance that this could be your last game? And he was like, 0% chance that this will be my last game.
2: (laughs) That's so crazy. Right? Like the
3: fact that he's still like, I can still go out there and fucking slang it and this. And, uh, you know, like it's... The power of deliberate practice. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, I think as long as Belichick is there and he's there, I think they're going to win. I think you've removed one. It's not going to be as successful.
2: Well, speaking of the pure excellence in this age of football... We are in the middle of the Johnny football cycle. Johnny Watt people. John, what's the... People are just like... Dude, dude, you got... People are... CG pilots in there uh, dropping dick punches. MCK. Like, dude,
3: it is... All all these people came back, man. Yeah. Beat fit football. Yeah. So we we, we brought back... And the hilarious part is uh, when I went back and looked at the original 100 workouts, they're pretty awful. Like, Uh I didn't know shit about programming. Like, it just... They all looked bad. And the funny part is, as I'm, pro, as I'm writing them in and like putting them in, the, I'm like, oh, Ooh. these are awful. And people are like, this is so great. We should do this. So. And I'm like, no, it's not that
2: great. What was it? 100 pull-ups uh, for time?
3: So that was one of our our, our benchmark workouts uh-huh. back in the day. It was 100 pull-ups. Every, Every and, time you come off the bar, you got to run 100 meters. Yeah, yeah. And so it was out to the corner and back. Uh-huh. And uh, it ends up being like sets of three and five. I like how there's like yeah.
2: some, of our, uh, some of our coaches <laughs> – Uh, At least as I'm poking around uh, social, like some block one guys are like, uh, yeah, just... I just did like fifty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> scale 100 up. No, like, this is well. They they, they stay they, kind of within that like the, what they <laughs> learned in the block one course. Like yeah, they,
3: they're like, where does all this Johnny or Johnny football fall into the block one? I'm like, nowhere.
2: Abort abort. It's,
3: uh, it, there's an extra book you haven't got yet, which is called <laughs> Fuck. Like, uh there it's uh, uh yeah. I it's mean, it's fun
2: nonetheless, dude. It's no,
3: awesome to it, see all that shit. It's a good walk down memory lane, and like, and and to see, um how far the program has come and then realize that you know, like I just go back like every time I'm reading like any of the comments or looking at it, all I can picture was, uh, remember in Backdraft when he's like, some people just want to watch the world burn, Ronald? Never seen it. You've never seen Backdraft?
4: Backdraft?
2: Oh my God Do
3: you remember when he's like, some people just want to watch the world burn? Like that's
2: I prefer that line from uh, Batman, uh, Dark Knight Rises Dark Knight. Dark Knight
4: with the rubies. Yes.
2: Yes. Some men oh, just want to watch draft. the world
4: burn. So
2: You're watching Backdraft. Oh, oh night. Uh, uh, is that the line? Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's
3: right. No, I think I made a mistake. That's the one where... Uh, um, Alfred. Alfred's talking about him. He's like, some people just want to watch the world burn. But was that um, in, in uh, Backdraft 2? Probably one way or another. No. The guy, uh, arsonist.
4: Had, had, had oddly shaped feet. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, uh, and on the, on the threat of excellence, well, first off, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking to you, Smuggler. And uh, who else was on? Bone who, Smuggler? No, was Smuggler? Wasn't that your nickname, Bone Smuggler? No, the, uh, I was... Uh, Smuggler's uh, Tampa. Bone Collector.
3: Yeah, yeah that was uh, uh, who else, Craig. Who are
2: some other, like... Uh, uh, I can't remember. I gotta go names. look
3: them up. Smuggler. <laughs> chimp, uh, uh Coco. Coco. Well, um, well, my favorite was when uh, Smuggler would usually come up to, like, curb stomp people that tried to, like, talk about how wonderful,
2: mm-mm, is... <laughs> Bleep Fit Football. Yeah. I think that's our shirt. Bleep Fit Football. No, it's it's Johnny Foosball. Well, anyways, calling all fucking rookies and veterans of Bleep Fit Football.
3: If you're out there.
2: Go to johnnywad.com. Pop on, have some fun. We got a few weeks ahead of us of like, some
3: we got
4: fun,
2: a lot. fun training. Get it's, in there, come out to the coast. Have, have it's
3: it's going to be, uh, like the only words I give for you, it's going to be a fucking bloodbath yes. because, uh, they don't even know. Like I've just been kind of going, like giving out like a week at a time. Cause what I don't want to do is give people anxiety because mm-hmm. they're going to yeah. see yeah. when all of a sudden this shit drops and they're going to be like, Oh God. yeah. And okay. then they're just, but it's, it's, it's coming. It's going to be like a fire hose to the fucking face.
2: So a couple little Easter eggs. We talked a little bit about deliberate practice excellence. Ooh, That's a little foreshadowing for our guest today. Author of Peak, we have wrangled in Anders Ericsson to talk some shop with us here at Power Athlete. And I got to say, like, world-class dude has, you know, thousands of researchers cite his work, right? Oh, yeah. No, he's And what he comes in is just, again, like, substantiates some of the principles within Power Athlete. John Wellborn's philosophy on training,
3: right? No, I I, I think what's, uh, for those of you guys that haven't read his work, I mean, uh, pick up the book Peak or go on and just Google his name. I mean, there's so much information. I mean, just, I was reading one today, you know, that idea of, uh, you know, mastery. And um, I I I was just really fascinated by him with the debunking of the 10,000 hours. Um, I think people get into this idea of, you know well, just you that, know time. that was a misrepresentation of his formal oh, research and he's gone back and debunked it which mm-hmm. i thought was really cool that you know somebody misinterpreted his information and the guy wrote a you know pretty significant book about it and he went back and debunked it and i was just actually before we jumped on the podcast you know going back and reading all of the information that he put in to dispel it so i really liked the fact that his information was misinterpreted and then he went out and fuck you know set the record straight so Um, The only thing which is funny, and I know a lot of Florida State guys, is that he's a Florida State University. I just imagined him not in Tallahassee.
2: Hmm. 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 How about that? Well, let's find out about it. Ladies and gentlemen, Anders Ericsson. All right, so Anders, again, thanks for joining us, man. Um, We're excited to dig into this because we we work heavily with coaches, coaches who are developing young athletes and can – drastically affect and influence their trajectory as they develop, right? As long as they're capturing it at the right time and, and early age. And uh, as an author, a scholar, a professor, you know, you, you're a very accomplished guy. So in case anyone hasn't heard of you, can you give us a little background on, on your starting point and your mentors and your journey to this space of studying expertise and high performers and in putting together these principles?
1: Well... I grew up in Sweden uh, and got my PhD. And I did both dates with a person that got the Nobel Prize two years later. Uh, And what I've been personally very interested in is the thinking that goes on. I guess it started out that I was interested in how I could improve my thinking. And then when I started. You know, being doing research in psychology, then it was natural for me to try to find methods by which I could study other people's thinking, and obviously I was more interested in the people who were doing amazing things than, you know, people who probably, you know, weren't spending as much time, you know, really thinking and and developing their thinking. And we did some work uh, in collaboration here with a couple of people at Carnegie Mellon and. Uh, And essentially what we wanted to do to see what effect does training have on improving your memory, where you read people random numbers and then have them report it back. And most people can do something around seven digits, like a phone number. But we were interested in, you know, if that short-term memory was something that you really couldn't change, that would sort of set limits for your intellectual uh, performance. And with training, we just took an average college student and basically allowed him to get practice on that task. And then we asked him to give verbal expression to what he was thinking about as he got better. And within about you know, a year and a half, he was able to reproduce strings uh, of 82 digits. Wow. Which at the time was viewed as, as truly you know, amazing. But I think what I got interested in is what is it that he did that was different from what you know the average person would do when they're trying to report digits and uncovering kind of what is it that you can change. And then I got more interested more generally in what is it that we've learned about how much somebody can change through training. And, and that's pretty much where my research has been, identifying people – Who are really able to do things that other people cannot and then actually study what they're thinking about or you know what movements they have if we're looking at running or basically something that is really relying on a particular type of motor performance and then basically ask the question how did they get to be able to do this and that's where kind of the focus on deliberate practice has emerged because it seems that a lot of amateurs in particular, once they reach an acceptable level at doing whatever they're doing, they just keep doing the same thing. And they can do that for like 30 years, even though they maybe play tennis or golf a couple of times a week. But the amazing thing is that they don't automatically get better. So we actually look at those people who, make the commitment to be better, and those are the ones who seek out coaches and now ask, you know, what is it that I need to do in order to be able to change this particular aspect and and then basically be guided through a training program, and then you can actually, you know, observe how they're actually able to do things better, you know, within a week or depending on what it is.
2: That's great when did so when did all this research kind of culminate, and when did you decide it was going to turn into a book?
1: now basically, I think it was like two peaks. one was uh when we actually published this paper on the college student that improved his short term memory in science, that got a lot of attention, uh basically about. You know, about 10 years later, I was working at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, and we actually did research on violinists. And we're able to kind of identify now the kind of different practice history that the very best violinists had engaged in that at least provided a partial explanation now for why they were able to win violin competitions whereas other individuals weren't. And actually the work on the book, that was maybe about 10, 15 years after that, where I started talking to uh, uh, a friend of mine who was writing for science and a real science writer. And he just thought that the work that I've been doing was sufficiently interesting that, you know, it would be worthwhile to share it. So we spent, you know, a couple of years sort of developing these ideas and and that's eventually what resulted in the book.
3: You find that the mastery because uh, a big part of any time when I was you know trying to do some research and just figure out a little bit uh, the questions and how this flow goes. Every time it always comes up with this 10,000 10, hours deal, and I think uh, you know as athletes and you know whether it be in college and mastery, people always kind of put that level and say you know it's uh, ten thousand hours of practice leads to this idea of mastery, and a big part of your research was debunking that that uh, you know just a, a, a volume number and this arbitrary number throwing out there for mastery. Just Just doesn't make sense. And I think uh, people have misconstrued that. And I think that was what was really interesting about your book and your work is that the uh, just putting the effort towards doing something opposed from putting the effort to do something well uh, ends up being the difference between success and not success.
1: Yeah. So Malcolm Gladwell was really the one who kind of stated this, the magic of the 10,000 hours as being necessary to really excel. And he drew on our work uh, because we found that the very top violinists in Berlin, they had actually logged about, on the average, 10,000 hours at age 20. But what he didn't say was that in order to win a violin competition, you're not going to be able to do that at age 20. You're probably going to be doing it at age 30, early 30s. When you have actually accumulated like 25,000 hours of this kind of deliberate practice, where you're really trying to change the health, you know, think most amateurs would go out on the, uh, and and basically play tennis, where they're just doing what they already are able to do. In order to get a change, you really need to bridge that gap between where you're currently at and where you want to be, and that really requires a lot of concentration and effort and and that seems to be one of the things that most amateurs are really not all that excited about doing
3: doesn't a factor come in of competition um just history i, I played in the nfl for 10 years and i'll tell you probably the biggest changes and i saw this in all type of athletes is when you had the element of competition that and I'm sure with the virtuosos, with uh, you know violin players, all of a sudden they put them in a group, and somebody's better than everybody, and then all of a sudden that allows people to you know close that gap quicker. Um, I saw that you know within the NFL and competing at the highest level that uh, the only way I was going to get better was by, by playing the best against the best players and playing my best. And so I wonder where competition really kind of breeds into this. It's just, um, I, I guess if you're you know, just by yourself playing, how much can you progress if there isn't somebody there to push you?
1: And, and I think it's very closely linked to one of the fundamental uh, insights that we had when we started this work. You need the objective measurements on performance. And if you look at what people used to do before our work, was essentially just having people nominate people who were experts at things, or people who've been doing it for 10, 20 years were kind of just automatically assumed to be doing things better. And when we actually analyze now the performance, you find that it's a very weak relationship between the number of years you've been doing something and your objective performance. If we talk about, for example, a surgeon <clears throat> and relate that to patient outcomes, where obviously if you have a surgeon whose patients, comparable patients, are doing a lot better a year after the surgery, you know that's really something that's tangible that is really interesting now to understand. How did this individual get to be able to achieve this higher level of performance? And I think that's one of the struggles that you have in team sports is actually pinpointing what is it that makes one individual a little bit better than somebody else. And I think that's what where a lot of the research is going, is actually identifying that there's a lot to do with your ability to perceive opportunities when you're in a game situation. And that raises the question now, How do you actually train to improve your ability of actually keeping track of what your teammates and your opponents are not just doing at that time, but where are they heading? Because that will actually allow you to see a little bit further into the future. And that seems to provide now an advantage for those individuals who can do that.
2: And I mean, that's so apparent with... Super Bowls around the corner. You got Tom Brady and Belichick. You put Tom Brady in a different coaching system with different supporting staff. You get the same results, but well, the, he certainly is one of the highest performing quarterbacks. Well, the ever
3: right. The one thing which is uh, universal, and I saw this with really really high level performers and playing in the NFL, was um, the guys who could pretty much what I called like kind of go into their. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard it used the zone, and there's like a million different. Uh, Ways that people have quantified it for me, um, everything slowed down and everything got real quiet. And uh, there was like a hyper focus where I'd, I'd notice things like uh, you know the color in the individual's fingers. I could see when he had more weight on his knuckles by the whites in his knuckles. I could see where the guy's feet were, and just everything got very very slow and very quiet. And I could notice very small things that allowed me to be able to move what I thought faster and be able to do certain things that were outside my normal skill set. And I remember talking to a psychologist and some other individuals when they asked me, you know, does the crowd noise bother you? And I, I told them, I'm like, I've never heard the crowd. Uh, from the time I run out there, everything's really deathly silent. And uh, I just become very laser-like focus. And I don't hear anything around me. I don't see anything other than the task in front of me. And um, the that I remember it was years. It was pretty early in my NFL career. And I remember the... Uh, the, he was a psychiatrist that came and, uh, would work with our team. And I remember telling him that, and he said, if, can you, uh, do something like that in your training? Like when you're lifting weights or you're doing that within your training, can you reach that level of focus? And I said, yes, 100%. Uh, he said, if you can train in that state more, you'll be more comfortable in that state and which will allow you to do better. And I take that same kind of laser like focus when I would go lift weights and when I would train and try to be very, very detail oriented, or at least kind of pull that mental state forward. And um, the, so when I read about a lot of your deliberate practice and I was going through it, it was very familiar to me.
1: Right, and, and, and I think uh, Michael Jordan, I think uh, some of his teammates complained that he was playing full intensity during practice, but he basically then argued, if I'm gonna improve during practice, I really need to be basically doing the same intensity that I'm doing basically when I'm playing matches. And I think that kind of idea is not all athletes are really aware of. It's almost like practice is something that you kind of do at 50%, and then you kind of save all the energy here for the matches uh, or, or basically what the competitive events. I've observed if you're going to change something, you do it, often during training. And then basically, so you have to maximize now, you know, the similarity and what you're doing during training. So you get that benefit when you're actually under, you know, competitive conditions.
3: Well, I mean, uh, if you think about the time allotted to really like high performance, if you were to figure out like a, you know, a pyramid of it, I mean, you figure when I went back and actually calculated the amount of hours that I put into training and practice, uh, opposed from actually game time competition, it was like a total of like less than 30 hours over 10 years. was actually in a, uh, you know, like, yeah, like a game speed situation. And then when you looked at the volume of training, I, I remember I calculated it out one time, and I think I stopped midway through because it was just depressing to think that I had dedicated my entire life to, you know, less than an entire day for, you know, high-level performance. And I think for a lot of athletes... Um, they don't realize that the time is so minuscule for them to reach that high level of, you know, excellence and the body of work that they do on the bottom side is what allows them to stand up. I mean, you know, you stand on the shoulders of giants the same way you stand on the, you know, your excellence within it. And the one thing that I noticed between the guys that did the job for a really long time at a high level was their attention to detail when nobody was watching, when it was a practice situation was as as detailed as it would be on game day. And I always believed that there was no switch. Like, there was never, like, uh, you know, the the age-old Allen Iverson where it's like, practice, you know, what are we talking about practice? You know, it's just practice. Um, I, the guys that I saw that were the best and, you know, in the Hall of Fame and some of the best athletes, their attention to detail was always that high. And um, it was just – there was no doubt in my mind why the best players in the world were the best players.
1: And, and, I, and I think that also uh, is really interesting because if you're going to – work in training with that level of intensity, I think there you have to be careful, one, so you don't really hurt yourself. Because I think that's one of the problems, especially when somebody is less skilled, is that you basically are pushing yourself outside of what you really can kind of control. And if you have an injury, then, you know, obviously, that's going to be very hard to recover from but also that idea that there seems to be a limited amount of time that people can actually be that you know maximally focused. Uh, I talk to surgeons and people who are writing uh, books and stuff like that, and there seems to be sort of a limit on how many hours you can actually you know, do this and then be able to relax so you can recover so next time you're going back to training, you're actually going to be able to induce that 100%. So, if you, and, and, and I think there's some interesting research where people, for various reasons, have been induced here to push themselves to do more than they really can do. And what you end up with is either an injury or sometimes burnout, where they don't really allow themselves to recover. Because if you're going to do 100% you really need to have your body reasonably recovered in order to kind of get to that point.
3: Is there a set amount in that range? Like, uh, you know, have you seen like, you know, surgeons have a focus of, I don't know, three hours, um, you know, like, is there ever been kind of upper and bottom limits of kind of that level of focus? I think it's
1: a little bit sports dependent. but, But what we found when there's when the constraint seems to be primarily intellectual like chess or writing. uh, And I think even music would fall into that category where we actually did a lot of research. And what we found was that the, these elite musicians, they seem to be pretty much practicing for about 45 to 60 minutes. And then they would take a break and then they would have another practice session. But, We never found anybody who was putting in more than three or four hours a day on practice. So even though they may not be doing anything else, it was almost like they'd reached their limit. So now the rest of the day, they had to spend more or less recuperating and and doing relaxing things to allow the body now to kind of recharge and get ready here for the next practice session the following day.
4: I'd love to dive into potential. So one of my favorite things from your book, Peak, was you said that how can an athlete build, they're focused on building potential versus any any labeling that we get into. So one thing we witness in a lot of sports is when you have to go recruit high school athletes as a college coach, you have to label. Who are you going to invest a scholarship in for the next four years so it can be dangerous? So how do you get into this label of potential And how can we empower athletes to break through any label to have success no matter what they are gifted with or not gifted with?
0: Well,
1: I I talk to different groups, uh, especially in the military, uh, and what they actually are looking for, and that seems to be true even when they're recruiting uh, individuals for the more prestigious uh, uh, domains of surgery, What they're looking for are individuals who actually have exhibited and reached kind of international level in some other type of domain. So for example, the surgeons, uh, there was one person who actually had been competing at the uh, uh, international level in martial arts. And now with surgery. Which is something that you kind of start when you're you know maybe 25 or something like that. Uh, that having had that experience of what it took to excel here in martial arts really helped that individual now kind of do the training for surgery in a way that at least they believed and their supervisors believed, you know was related now to that prior experience. So given that so many individuals, you know, who are adolescents really can't be successful in football or whatever, I tend to uh, suggest here that if they can just have that experience of what it takes and what you need to do to really excel, you have actually now learned something that may actually, you know, be really important for your future professional success. Uh, but, but kind of that idea that unless you know that there's some limiting factor that you really can't influence by training, I think just assume that there is this limit. I, I'm kind of more interested in people searching for these kinds of, uh, limits. And I think when it comes to body size and height, so obviously if you're short, you, you know, NBA is not going to be your best choice here of career. So, and and virtually any sport seems to have some preference here in terms of the size of the body. So in gymnastics, you're actually much better off if you're short. <clears throat> but when we're going outside now, these kind of dimensions here of the body, I've yet to really see really compelling evidence that at least people have identified genes that will now actually constrain somebody. Now, obviously, if we're talking about people who are 16 years of age, whatever they've done up to that point is going to obviously limit some of the things that they will be able to do in the next year or two. But kind of that general idea that, you know, unless you have science to, prove here that you can't do certain things, I think you should basically leave it open. There's some really interesting work done now on identical twins. Now, most of the work that basically showed here that identical twins were more similar in their physical abilities than fraternal twins. Now they're actually looking at identical twins where one of the twin is actually engaged now in physical training, whereas the other one is not. And what you're actually seeing now is huge differences for these identical twins, where obviously they have the same genetic arrangement. It's more that the training is now activating bodily changes that now uh, leads to these changes as a function of the training.
3: Doc, I have uh, uh, twin daughters that are fraternal. Uh, They could not be more different. It, it blows my mind to think that they both came out at the same time. I mean, one's uh, taller and dark hair. The other one's a little shorter and blonde hair and have completely different uh, strengths within their school. I mean, uh, it's 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 unbelievable to the point where people are like, I can't believe they're sisters. And so it just makes me realize that, you know, I mean, and they were both raised in the same home, same identical. I mean, every opportunity the same and just have naturally gravitated in different ways.
1: There is some interesting research that has been done that actually shows that siblings are more different from each other than you would actually expect. So the uh, argument is that there are different places within the family space. So if you actually have one individual who's successful in one domain, then actually it may be more easy for somebody to be successful if they pick a different domain. Uh, so, so I think there are some really interesting dynamics, and I don't know if that applies in your case, but sometimes there may be fairly, you know, chance factors that lead somebody now to explore one direction, and then basically the other one, especially if they don't really view themselves as being identical, and I think that's one of the issues with identical twins Everyone is telling them, you know, that they should be able to do it. I mean, what's the reason here why you wouldn't be able to do it? And uh, so so I think there is a lot more factors operating there than uh, people have uh,
2: given. So, Andrews, within the confines of achieving excellence in more of the fine arts, whether it's music or, um, you know, painting or drawing – Is there any connection or is anyone looking at the link between that fine art skill improving alongside with like a physical training regimen, right? That you can actually increase capacity for some of the finer arts if you're in better shape or you're striving to be in better shape.
1: I think that's really interesting. And uh, personally, I don't know of uh, those kinds of uh, uh, research and and i think one of the problems is that most of these things are happening so a lot of these things will probably happen relatively early if you're now aiming here for the very highest levels and uh, but i agree with you that more generally here you know maintaining your health is is you know should be a really good way and that May actually increase now the amount of time that you would be able to, you know, focus and concentrate. So it would be sort of investment here in your uh, productive time. Hmm.
3: Have, have you ever done any or uh, do you have any research on like, you know, there's people that are generally considered to be, you know, uh, you know, orders of magnitude smarter than others, you know, and you can go back and look at, you know, the, uh, you know, Einsteins and these other individuals. Is there any universal traits uh, for them? Like, uh, you know, they tend to be loners or anything that allows them to be more reflective. I sometimes think that people that tend to maybe be a little more, uh, I don't know, you could say like um, solemn or just a little more involved that they tend to kind of uh, create these situations to kind of, for excellence. So I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking for, let's say like a parent that's listening to this, and we have a ton of parents that listen to this, and uh, you know, especially a lot of fathers that are looking to develop their children, and something I encourage for my children because I have twins and I also have a little boy, is that they spend time by themselves doing things that interest them, that not everything has to always involve this kind of co-play. So like my one daughter's really into like uh, she has horses and she collects little horses. So I built her this big table and she has this really elaborate horse farm. And uh, my other daughter, we play chess and I let my other daughter go up and play with her horses. And uh, I try to give them enough time by themselves to develop individually, because I think with twins and especially kids, you kind of just want them to always kind of work together or kind of lump them in if one wants to do this, the other one. And so I've I've just gotten into this idea of... um, having some alone time or things that are unique to each individual. So they feel special or connected to one thing.
1: I I think that sounds like a great idea and it connects a lot, a little bit of that idea that you're allowing uh, your daughters to Get deep in something, because it seems to me that that is really the where you really need now these more focused activities where you're actually not just you know watching TV and absorbing passively, but you're actually generating something and uh, and finding ways here. You know, we talk about deliberate practice as that activity that a teacher would be able to assign to an individual who could be an adolescent or a child, to go off and actually do that by themselves where they now develop that ability of evaluating basically the outcome and now problem solve on how they can actually now improve. And and those are the kinds of skills that I think are really valuable. I think it's also really helpful to have the parent having that unique relationship with each child so it's not like you know everyone has to have a shared but that you would be able now to talk to your one daughter that you're playing chess with and i don't know if you or your wife is having these conversations with your uh, a daughter who's doing the horses but basically kind of allowing for that adult to child interaction and then helping them structure activities that allows them now to kind of go deeper and develop things that they can be proud of and that sort of makes a difference.
3: Do you, do you find in this uh, kind of age of information with computers and TVs and just seems like uh, iPhones and pa- I mean, everywhere is some form of pass. I guess you could say it's like an active deal, but it's more this passive in- uh, information being kind of pushed on them at all times. Do you find that it's more difficult? uh, today than it was, let's say 30 years ago. I mean, I, you know, I'm 40 years old and I remember as a kid, you know, just going outside and doing nothing, which was by far our favorite thing to do and, uh, you know, making up games or this and just being outside. Whereas now it seems, you know, there is just so many, like so much passive information coming at people or at, at these kids that, uh, it, it makes me nervous. I think like, man, like go outside, get, get away from this stuff. I mean, uh, even adults though, John, Yeah. Mean- Bombarded, Yeah, no, I mean, constantly bombarded that people are almost never alone to the point where they're alone with their own thoughts to kind of create and to think and to do this. I mean, we we do it if I mean, think about, uh, you know, you're out and, I you know, we take my, our little girl or my daughters go to, you know, whatever sporting events or we go to practice, whatever. Uh, as I'm sitting there watching every parents on a phone. And so I'm always thinking like they're always pulling in this information instead of seeing what's in front of them. It's just it it. Yeah, and I don't necessarily know how to describe it, but it just doesn't seem that people are as connected or maybe there's just so much information that we've gotten into the point where I'm just a huge catcher's mitt opposed from being able to interact.
1: I, you know, I, I think this is a relatively recent phenomenon. So I don't know that we have the research to really be able to identify what's really happening. But but I personally believe that that need of actually finding things that you will be working on to create depth where you're actually generating your ability to do things. are going to kind of take care of the things that are relatively easy to do uh, that basically individuals wouldn't really require a lot of skills to be able to do. I think those kinds of jobs are, are going to be, you know, less and less and that we're actually now going to be able to, uh, you know, really look for individuals who have now during their development gained these skills that really go past something that the computers can do. And that's going to become more and more valuable as, uh, you know, uh, the technological kind of changes are, going to basically take over more and more of of these kinds of jobs and i think one thing that i've noticed is this kind of short cycle that people get bored here if nothing really exciting happens within two minutes now that i think is totally antithetical to this ability here of spending you know three four hours you know really challenging yourself and now engaging in this type of deliberate practice that we've been talking about. And uh, that maybe worries me even more, that if we can find now that in many of these graduates are no longer kind of able to sustain you know, that concentration for these longer periods, I think it's going to make them vulnerable to all sorts of problems.
2: Well, like what like what 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 are some problems do you do you see like let's say the top problems that could come with this yeah.
1: competing with computers uh would be sort of one thing and uh and also this idea here that you should be entertained because the way i grew up my father told me that you know i had some number jobs that I didn't thought were there interesting, so we had this discussion about how I could make them more interesting to myself. And that idea here that if, if there's a way here of rethinking what you're doing so it actually gets interesting, and very often by paying attention to people's reactions, you can make something that seemed like a routine job make it much more engaging for you And you're probably going to do a much better job than somebody who is sort of more mechanically responding
3: to requests.
2: Yeah. And I guess more fulfillment. Right. And then just kind of longitudinally happier life. Well, but also
3: I think you have to learn to uh, find some, I guess you could say, like, uh, you know, to be content or really just like to be able to work in a monotonous situation and be able to do it for extended periods of time and and be able just to to do that like i see that with with the kids today or at least with my kids like they get bored super easy and i'm like dude at some point you're gonna have to be able to be okay with just being able to put in the volume of time i mean sitting down to read and say hey i have to you know i was thinking about in college just the the volume of reading i had to do and just information i had to absorb uh, my ability just to suffer through that information. And I know that's a terrible word for it, but there is a volume of work that needs to be done. And I have to be able to get through this so that I can get onto the next piece. And I, I worry that people are losing the ability to suffer through some of that mundane work, uh, because this need to always be entertained or this always to have some distraction. Is
4: it the student unwilling to, to learn to be entertained or the teacher no longer being engaging and entertaining with the information?
1: Well, I guess the thought that I had, you know, when we look at these elite musicians, when they start practicing with their instruments, you limit that to 15, 20 minutes, but it's almost like that ability of sustaining concentration and doing more difficult things is actually one aspect of the skill that you're acquiring. So uh, at age, 18, 19. You know, they would spend four or five hours basically practicing. But this is something that now gradually develops over that 12-year period. And 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 I believe that by having that view on these things, as a parent, you know, you have to be patient and basically. So if you believe uh, that you can, you know, have your children here going from zero to a hundred immediately it's almost like you're asking for them to fail so by basically having and i think that you know coaches realize you know that somebody who you know is 14 and wants to do something that seems to take years of affection at you need to have that expectation and by basically now being able to see how you're gradually getting better that can now feed and sustain you on this process of getting better. And I think that's something that I would also advocate when it comes more in general of that ability of doing something that's difficult. Uh, Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book uh, Grit, she actually had her children every time, every sort of year, decide on something that was difficult. know whether it was music or learning a new language or something that they basically would spend you know every day pretty much a certain amount of time engaged in and then they would then you know that would be part of her job in conjunction with 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 think this activity that would make it meaningful you know maybe Finding somebody in this other country that you could communicate with over the internet, or finding a relative that basically primarily speaks this other language, or in music, you know, that idea here that you can produce music that other people just find to be really invigorating and pleasing. That kind of sense here of accomplishment, I think, is something that is really valuable and, you know, is something that provides now this more general skill of what is it that i can do to reach now the level that i i want to reach
3: can you, can you figure or uh, discuss the idea of um, and i'm going to say just fun um, you know, I mean, people tend to gravitate towards things that they enjoy. So I know for my kids, uh, you know, we worked on playing, uh, we worked on playing the guitar and they really enjoyed it. And then I taught myself to play the guitar so I could help them. And then at some point they were like, this isn't fun. And I was like, well then let's not do it. If you guys aren't enjoying it, I don't want you just to trudge through it. And, uh, like the idea of finding things that people enjoy and they want to do opposed from making it look like work, especially at a young age. Um, I, I know when, uh, um, my kids come home we have like a spelling test every week and so we have this big thing where they're you know constantly working to spell and we work on it and it's fun and i look at the words and try to you know give them you know like mix them all up and say hey you know why is this word wrong we kind of play games with it but i know that the things that are fun or if i can make it fun in the funny way like i'll make up definitions of words uh, i'm like oh yeah that that's what this word means but it also means this and i kind of play with them and constantly i'm trying to like you know basically mind fuck them in a funny way but uh I find that if I can make things fun or enjoyable and there's something that they can see like with laughter and it doesn't feel like work, They're much more gravitated towards it. And I find that it's easier for me to uh, get them into these things than it is where if they're like, oh, this doesn't feel this is, you know, like picking up leaves, for example. We did that yesterday. And all they could tell me was like, oh, this is so hard. I'm like, well, how many piles do we have? So I cut it up into piles and they counted the piles. And I was like, okay if you can pick up these piles by the time I count to this. And then I made a little game out of it and we cleaned up all the leaves. So it seems like parenting is almost like finding fun ways to trick your kids into doing stuff
1: right but but I, but I do think that if we go back to the guitar uh, scenario I would probably have contacted a guitar teacher who's been successful basically working with children because I think the tricky part is that you know when you struggle and you're trying to do something and you really don't have that ability of actually seeing how you get better or getting the reaction from the people that you're performing in front of, I think it's really easy just to say, oh, that's too difficult. But uh, once you start looking at individuals who have a long time success of guiding uh, children, they could probably then identify those small kind of goals that are achievable. uh, But if you don't really have that knowledge of the particular Kind of skills required to progress. I think it's very likely that you would expect certain things to be much easier than they are, especially for children that you know probably won't you know approach the task the same way adults would. Uh, but but anyway, I think that's an interesting question here. Of and, and 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 I think that's the reason why Angela just had them do one difficult thing. You know, so they could basically have all the rest of the time doing whatever, but basically being able to make progress on that one difficult thing, I think, provided them now with kind of a manageable task. And especially if you had a tutor or a teacher who in some ways could break it down to uh, portions and then actually provide this interesting adult that they would have that unique interaction with. Uh, as a sort of a reward, but anyway, i you know i I don't know if that would have changed things, but that's how I would think about it.
3: no we're going to reboot the guitar. I think um, the one thing I noticed was that the the music and the like the finger dexterity and the coordination and just really just like the timing and listening to different music I thought it was extremely helpful for them in terms of their growth. Um, you know uh, both my kids are pretty sharp, and I think uh, at least from seeing with the music stuff, I, you know, like it was kind of a natural thing. Like my one daughter who was better, like she's really good with, with chess and being able to, you know, hear that there's a progression and a finish. And, uh, I just see that there's a, like, there's a correlation between the two. And I think, um, I think teaching a musical instrument, especially seeing that and being able to progress into it is, can be extremely helpful for them. So yeah, we're going to reboot the guitar. And then also, uh, and any of the language stuff, I mean, they've, you know, as you know, there's extensive research that talks about, you know, if you can learn new languages, it always helps, you know, cognitively help them grow in a, in different ways. So I think uh actually the, the one or the idea of choosing one task and working with that hard task and then each year rebooting another one's a great idea.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that's spending a little time finding that one thing that they're committing to, I think you know, just makes it a lot easier here to get started. And then once you get off to a good start, you know, then I think a lot of the potential problems will uh, disappear.
4: I'd love to get into feedback. So we work with a lot of coaches, teachers, and there's almost two perspectives of feedback. One internally as an athlete, if I failed at that weight or I can't quite catch a note on the guitar and also the coach's perspective of picking out exactly what information they are willing to hear at that failure, that moment in time. So any guidance from a coach's or an athlete's perspective on how to stay focused on the task and stay in that deliberate practice?
1: Well, to me, uh, if you have somebody who really has a goal for where they are striving, then I think a really skilled coach and, and, and I personally think that some of the evidence that you're a really good coach is that you can actually now describe 20 people that you were able now to get from point A to point B, and you can now have everyone, you know, being able to verify that that's the case. uh, And, and that basically if this is now the path that the individuals who are seeking you out want to have, you know, then basically I think having that Ability and what I'm encouraging coaches is actually taking videos of these individuals in the beginning Maybe even a couple of times during this process and then actually videos of how they Achieve this endpoint that you both agreed on as a sort of the goal for this part of, of the career and and I think just seeing other people struggle and, and, and having sort of a chance of observing uh, this process, I think has a lot of motivational benefits. And uh, that also, I guess, once you have that documentation here of what it took for 20 individuals, maybe you would be able to document now, was that process very different for different individuals? Or was it basically that people were running up against the same kind of challenge and then you know having them being aware of that may avoid some of the motivational problems so they're kind of prepared for what it's going to take here to kind of cross that uh, uh obstacle
2: so within that context though we we travel around and we work with various level strength coaches whether they're working with amateur athletes recreational athletes even professional athletes And uh, one thing that people will struggle with in their area is there's that one studio or that one gym or one coach who seems to constantly be getting everyone who has that genetic potential, right? And within the strength and conditioning world, there's various tactics that you can take to develop athletes. And when you're working with the top tier genetic freaks, quote unquote, almost anything you throw at them is going to work because they've had an early adoption. They're already on this upward trajectory, and now you have a coach who appears to be an expert, but in all actuality, he's just kind of got that, that perfect hand, right? And what we don't see or don't hear about is that coach's failures. So as an athlete or a parent or a coach, uh, as you're evaluating your place in, in that landscape, how, do you, how can these guys tactfully call out or bring to light some of these, I guess, uh, self-proclaimed experts or uh, gurus? uh, gurus.
1: It it seems to me that if you actually saw videos of where people were at when they were now given this same goal, uh, you may find some coaches are just basically able to do a certain kind of athlete, whereas other coaches may be able to do a wider range. And if I was a parent, and picked a coach, I would want to find a coach that actually had worked with, you know, uh, children or adolescents that were very similar to my child, because that would give sort of the assurance here that, you know, uh, other children akin to that uh, are now, you know, able to succeed. And and I think that idea of, of actually trying to describe where people are starting out is something that I'm getting very interested in. And, and on occasion here, I've had arguments with people who claim that they you know, knew about this natural athlete that basically when they encountered this individual, you know, he was able to do these amazing things. And at least on one occasion, I was able to motivate this coach to actually go and get information about what the parents did. Well, it turns out that this was a family that kind of pretty much from the beginning was doing all these enormous hikes and, and engaging in all these kinds of activities. Now, obviously that wasn't part of kind of a more traditional training schedule, but obviously that type of experience and expectation, you know, uh, really made, uh, you know, certainly I think that coach was kind of a little surprised here that, there was actually things that you know could at least be competing explanations for why this individual was so you know developed muscularly and 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 being able to do these things that other children of the same age wouldn't be able to do
2: and that starting point's a great a great point to bring up anders text wasn't there a study, or is this an observation of yours that, you know, as you evaluate in, let's say, a Big Ten program or high-level prestigious NCAA Division One program, you evaluate 40-yard dash times coming out of high school of some of the key players, and then you retest their 40-yard dash time going into the combine, and there's, like, no improvement. But-
4: not it was just from my coaching at UT and then talking to John just to keep my sanity because <laughs> honors, there was the guys that were just incredibly gifted athletes stepping in the door at 18 years old, and they would have great 40-yard dash times. And then three or four years later, when they're prepping for the, the next level, it would be slower or the same. So they didn't necessarily develop over those three, four years
3: with that program.
2: And hey, that's it, like it prime just blew, time, right? It, I, mean, I couldn't, but... but
4: yeah.
3: But, I mean, this also goes back to the fact that uh, uh, strength alone is not your determining factor for speed. Uh, speed development, I mean, everybody wants to say, hey, you know, if so-and-so got stronger and they were aged more, then speed would develop more. But, I mean, we've seen, uh, I think there was a girl who set like the 400 or 800-meter record uh, who, you know, couldn't even basically do like a bodyweight squat. And I remember Raphael posted it up and she was, you know, severely weak and wasn't necessarily very strong by what you'd say, but her ability to run, which is more an expression of coordination. Um, you know, you know, and that's, you know, central nervous system efficiency, how well your turnover, I mean, all these key factors go into it. So I think, uh, the problem is, is that we have this idea that you bring an 18 year old kid in and he's, you know, untrained, um, you know, he's this raw athlete. And then if I put him into a training system, he theoretically should be better at the end of four years. The problem is, is most college strength coaches aren't looking to develop, just like in the NFL, they're not looking to develop people. Yeah, don't they're hurt just, them. Try, yeah, they're trying to not hurt them and just kind of let them go. And they figure out, like, over time with age, they'll just grow into the same player. Um, and, but then there was also... Uh, A very different mindset for a lot of athletes like for me um, I was fortunate I got to go to UC Berkeley on a scholarship and uh, I was just excited to be there because they were paying for my college I didn't think I was gonna play in the NFL and so I graduated in four years got worked on my master's in my fifth and then I got a chance to go play in the NFL and figured I'd play in the NFL just long enough to make some money to go back to law school and then that ended up being ten years when I got there and realized that uh, all the hard work that I'd done for school and training and all these things just to be there allowed me to go on and, and you know fucking beat people's asses for ten years. And I think the problem is is that um, in college, and I know this sounds strange, is there's a, kind of a hierarchy of people. You know, there's like really gifted athletes and they don't really learn to work, and then there's athletes that might not have been as good but really learn to work, and then you get to the NFL and everybody gets thrown into this high level, and the guys that haven't learned to do The work, like almost like the curse of the gifted is what I called it, Mm -hmm. where you were gifted too early. Um, I was a, you know, a late bloomer. Um, Guys that I saw, you know, when I went to college, I was 6'4 and I grew to 6'6 in college. I didn't own a razor when I went to college and was barely shaving, you know, every other day by the time I was 23. So it was just really interesting. Whereas my roommate, who was 18, showed up and he had like a full beard and chest and he was like, you know, had looked that way since he was four. He, He had been like 300 pounds since he was 15. And I think he was, came in, was really good and was just lazy. And I, I always, um, for my kids and for everybody, I hope that they suck early on in life. Like I never want people to be good at stuff because it's just easy. I don't have to put in the time. I don't have to learn the deliberate practice. I don't have to do the extra things that it takes to be very good. And I think people just naturally gravitate towards things that are easy for them or what they're good at. And, uh, I'm, kind of surprised today is people don't want their kids to struggle. Everybody's trying to give everybody the advantage in this, and I think struggle is the best teacher. Like sucking at things and not being good and, you know, coach says you're no good and you're not playing. That that's like a universal story in every great athlete from, you know, Michael Jordan getting cut off his team. I mean, these stories are universally true. And uh, for me, it was. I mean, I I wasn't as good as I as I as I could have been, and there were people that were better than me. And I had this always this feeling that I had to like close the gap and work. And I was just stoked because they were giving me a scholarship, and I got a chance to go to Berkeley, which is where my dad told me all the really really smart people went. Sorry, I know you're a Florida State guy. I played next to T- Trey Thomas, who was a Florida State guy, and uh, okay, uh, so yeah, and I I know a lot of guys from Florida State, but that idea of not being good at something or not having excellence at a young age almost creates something inside you where you don't feel as good and you have to work for it. And, uh, I, I don't know if I would ever want to rob an athlete of like that experience. Does that make sense?
1: I think it makes a lot of sense. Now I would say that I've talked to a lot of people at the world-class level and they seem, you know, to never really be satisfied it's almost like they're more critical and see ways that they can kind of improve, in a way that maybe a lot of the other people are not even considering. I mean, they. So, so it seems to me that that gap between what you think you would be able to do and where you're currently at, I think that it's sort of almost independent of where you are on the curve, uh, but. It's very easy to kind of perform at a level that is sufficient. So now you basically don't have to do anything, but as everyone else is getting better, you know, and you're not changing, you're eventually going to be worse than uh, the whole uh, crowd. And I think you see that in college as well. You know, kids who had an easy time in high school and they basically believe here that they're going to be able to get away with essentially doing the same thing, and they get into a you know prestigious university with a lot of competition, and within a couple of years, you know, they're starting to fail, and, and they you know, and at that time, it's not that easy. But I think that's another thing to be said for the struggling part. If you know that you actually have been able to oh) I think that provides you with a sort of a meta-awareness of what you're able to do, whereas if everything has been just smooth sailing and then you run into a problem, you know, an injury or or something like that, then these individuals are going to have a much harder time now kind of dealing with that because they really haven't gotten that training and and how to address adversity and problems.
3: How how do you... Is there a way to artificially bring it uh, like a, a almost uh build in adversity at a young age? Like I, this is something I've, I've, I've written a ton on and I don't really know how to articulate it. Other than the fact, like there has to be a way to build in adversity for younger athletes or, you know, developmental deal, like to have to build in these adversities so that They don't uh, like they learn how to almost fail and how to overcome certain tasks at a young age so that or because what I'm always so fearful of is that kids you know, everything's easy. The parent makes it easy. They put them in tracks that are easy and they kind of get there. And then all of a sudden they get to a point where they're 17 or 18, kind of like our intern, you know, Luke, uh, you know, Luke talked about, uh, we had an intern this year. Not me, Luke. No. So we had the uh, Luke, Luke was our intern. Luke number two for our and, listeners. And <laughs> when we were going through it and he, he he was graduating from college, he came and interned with us. And we asked him what was the biggest development. He said, uh, in, in school, school was always pretty easy for me. So I I selected a track that I was good at. Uh, I was good in, you know, I swam in college or in high school, but I didn't really play sports in college. And the first time I've ever really felt like I wasn't good at something and i was failing was in this internship and it really helped him grow and i remember thinking man if the first time i experienced sucking or or failing or adversity was in, when i was in my 20s i mean and i told him by the time i was your age i was playing in the nfl like i had overcome injuries and adversity and all this at a younger age and i always think about you know if you want to you know hike mount everest you got to hike a lot of little little mountains along the way so if your first experience is a real big one there's a you know a greater chance to fall so Uh, how do we build in adversity to, you know, young students, young athletes, or just does it naturally happen? Or is there a way to put them on a track for it?
1: Well, that's where I see that commitment to, you know, attaining a high level of skill in whatever domain is almost providing, you know, with this landscape of, of challenges. And if you have a good coach, then that coach will, make sure here that you're basically facing appropriately difficult challenges, because obviously if you give something that is too difficult for somebody to attain here within a couple of months, you know that's gonna be very frustrating. So, And there may really not be anybody in the whole world who's been able to achieve kind of that change in skill uh, in those two months. So basically that knowledge about what is manageable And if they are having difficulty, then basically they come and get advice. And then basically you work together here to identify changes. So so I believe that sports and and, and arts and, and basically pretty much any domain where you have that objective feedback about how well you achieve would provide that miniature landscape where you would be able to get these experiences without really having to be devastated. It's not like you have to lose your parent or something like that.
2: Yeah, so it sounds like it kind of comes down to achievement. I mean, and achievements along the way and expectations to attain these things and creating elements of risk where you may fall short. And when you fall short, it's about getting that feedback loop of, okay, why having a coach or a mentor or a leader help identify what that limiting factor was, place that achievement back up and train to knock it out. And then you achieve and like it's just that loop.
3: The one thing which is interesting for me, especially about younger athletes, is that they're very goal oriented. Like um, I want to I want to be good so I can win the trophy. And I remember when I was younger like that, but I remember at some point there was a change where I started to enjoy the process. And I remember it was in college that, you know, my goal when I got to college was just to get good grades. And then at some point I realized that I was there to learn and the grade was just a function of like, uh, how well I was able to master the information. And I remember like sitting down and reading and actually falling in love with the process of going to class and like, and and learning and absorbing this information. And by the time I got to the final and the test, it was like, here's my, here's my time to shine and show you how much I learned. And like that huge change in, in mindset for me personally, uh, was like this huge revelation where um I felt like I I was exactly where I wanted to be and I I loved school it was by you know I, and I started looking at it like I get to go play football, which pays for my school. And I get to absorb all this information and take all these cool classes and learn from all these amazing people. And, uh, I, I just love that experience. But I remember when I got there, I had to do this so I can get this grade. So I can do this, this, and this. And I remember there was a change in mindset when I changed that mindset, especially in sports, where it just wasn't about starting being successful, but it was about training and doing all these processes that allowed me to be better so that I can go out and prove exactly that the work I did was beneficial. Like, that change in mindset, and it happened when I was probably about 19, 20 years old. And, um, it, like, and I explained it to people, and they looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language. Like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, you guys don't enjoy this process. Like, you got to get up at 6 in the morning. We got to go train in this. And doing all this work just is the volume of work that allows me to get to the test to be successful, not just trying to pass the time to get there. So it makes Is that a...
1: I think that makes a lot of sense, and I would argue that when I look at individuals who basically are musicians, and if, if they actually spend time, maybe an hour or two, you know, just playing for themselves, so they're actually exploring now the kind of musical expression that they can do, and they can actually listen to the music that they're producing. That kind of gives you a, a freedom and also self-confidence of mastery in a way that I think, you know, you were talking about, because if you're reading something for understanding, and I remember I kind of hated memorizing things, so I would actually go to the library and read two or three books about the same period, which allowed me actually then to answer all the questions without having to memorize anything, because I could kind of reconstruct it from my memory of the books. And I think that idea of actually making learning meaningful, so you have a sense here of, you know, that you're actually learning something, so it's going to allow you to do things that you couldn't do before. I think that's kind of the key here to all these domains uh, where, where you really are striving for a higher level of performance.
3: It comes down to changing the mindset from being task-oriented to process-oriented. Wait. Andrews, you talked about in your book,
4: knowledge telling versus knowledge transforming. And I know, John, we've talked about the difference between our undergrad and grad. Undergrad, it was a lot of classes just memorize facts. You are told these things. And then grad school is the opportunity to think for yourself. And it's almost like that's what what you experienced in your education and athletic career.
1: Right. And, And I think there is a problem, because when you're starting out in a domain, it's very hard to do it meaningful until you basically have generated the fundamentals so you can actually produce now pleasant musical sounds or you know you have the facts that you need in order to be able to comprehend the text. Uh, but I believe that helping you know children and adolescents or young adults to kind of grasp what that process is, at least gives them the choice here of how to invest their time. And because I think it's pretty meaningless what some of the college students that I run into do. They're just kind of studying for the test. And if you ask them two years later, you know they probably don't remember hardly anything. So the question is, what was, you, what was really the benefit here of you putting in that whole semester here studying? Uh, if, if really basically the knowledge that you have really can't
3: be, uh, identified. I mean, isn't that really, a um, you know, a function of our society where they say, Hey, you know, you have to go to school to get a degree and the degree is what allows you to get the job. And instead of being like, you know, you're going to this, you know, higher level of uh, learning to not only to grow as an individual, to expand, to understand, you know, how to think, um, you know, what should be the function of it. But I think because everything is so goal oriented, and I remember on my recruiting trip to Berkeley, um, they, I got to go meet with a guy who a guy named Adrian Cragen, who was the Dean of the, of Bolt Hall, the law school. And he was an older guy. Uh, I think he was in his seventies at the time. And it was cool. Cause he had a scholarship that he had set up for a four year, uh, letterman to go to Bolt Hall, to go to law school. And, uh, the Old, uh, He was an old time attorney and like he knew the old attorney that mentored my dad who my dad was a lawyer as well. And I remember I asked him, you know, if I want to be successful in school, he told me you need to learn to read and write to the best of your ability. And if you can read and write to the best of your ability, you will learn to think to the best of your ability. And if you can do that, you'll be successful in anything. And, um, he asked me if I learned, if I love to read. And I told him, I, I really enjoyed to read. And he said, great. He's like, if you can absorb all this information, but understand it and be able to articulate it. And we had a really amazing conversation to the point where I was 18 years old and I'm in my forties now. And I remember like it was yesterday. Um, that, uh, That idea of just not making it this kind of transaction that I have to go there, I'm going to play football, I'm going to get this degree, and then I'm going to go off into the world. And because I have this degree, I'm going to, you know, make money and live this great life. It was more about going there and, uh, you know, learning who I was, learning the information and finding my place within the world and really what was important to me. And uh, I just remember like that change in mindset being like very night and day where all of a sudden I just wasn't there to get a degree. Because, you know, when you show up to play football, what does the coach say? I want you to take a bunch of classes that you can get good <laughs> grades in so that you can stay eligible and not mispractice and not mispractice. So that was like a huge thing. And I remember thinking like, fuck that. Uh, I'm at this, you know, I'm at Berkeley. I'm going to take classes that are challenging me as an individual. And, uh, like, what am I just here just to, you know, have a scout? Like it just, it was weird to me. And I, I remember thinking like, I'm going to play football for you, but I'm going to I'm gonna drink it in. I'm gonna drink as much as I can and I'm gonna put myself in the deepest water I can. Cause if I don't, how how am I ever gonna, you know, test myself? And um, you know, I ended up uh you know finding a major. I was a rhetoric major like English philosophy and uh I learned to read and write and I, I loved every ounce of it to the point when I went to go play in the NFL. I wanted to come back to college and always thought I would work, you know, as a professor or something like that. And it's interesting now that I retired that's exactly what we do. We work with coaches, we work with athletes, helping them grow, just not physical training, but really just in, in all areas and, um, changing people's mindset into this kind of growth education or, or just, you know, absorbing the knowledge so that the knowledge leads to more more so than just earning the block and getting, you know, getting the, uh, you know, getting the diploma, which is, is something that I, I, talk all the time to my daughters about they want to go out and be good at soccer so that they can get like the you know the the award for the best player that day so that they can get a i don't know a, a gift certificate to get some ice cream or something like and i'm like whoa, whoa, whoa. so you, you guys just want to be good so you can get the the award you don't want to be good so that you score goals and that you feel good and you're this valuable part of the team They're like no, no no we just want to get the award And i'm like ah So as a as a parent, seeing this like this change in my own mind, I'm like, does it take till I'm 20? Because if not, this is like, how do I teach my kids this sooner? So like that's I think what I'm so interested, especially having you on is as a parent, how can I instill in my children to love the process more so than just the reward at the end, like the care at the end of the stick?
1: Well, I I think the more that you would be able to kind of generate uh, the definition here of what success is. I've seen a lot of very successful people. And and one of the things that they often tell me is that their parents was actually having them at the dinner table where they were engaging now in conversation. And I remember uh, basically one uh, very successful uh, uh, guy in in, in computer science. he basically was assigned a topic. So every dinner, he was pretty much asked to talk to the rest of the group here about some topic that he had been reading about. And then, you know, basically there would be discussion. But basically that sense here of of, of kind of encouraging that understanding. uh, Now, obviously you need to prepare so you're not asking them to do things that is really, you know, putting too much pressure on them, but kind of that idea that if we're going to evaluate the types of things that you were talking about, then basically having tests here at the end of the semester on particular topics and courses is probably not the way you would evaluate it. And that's one reason why I've been most interested in the professional schools, you know, looking at medicine, uh, engineering, and and basically other domains here where you can really talk about preparing you for a job where you can actually evaluate now to what extent when you are, uh, you know, basically passing the exam, will you now be able to kind of uh, perform in this new job in a way that really is uh, appropriate for your patients or, or your
2: clients? Yeah, that's... A- so,
1: so, so that idea of, and I think the problem is a little bit with our big universities here with you know, these enormous lecture classes. Uh, you know, I think there are some smaller liberal art colleges where you basically have maybe eight or nine students into the class and then, you know, the teacher can read all the papers that you're producing every week and give you comments. Uh, and that's actually a very different environment than, you know, what you would have at the major universities. I believe that any student who's now seeking out a professor might actually have that kind of relationship with that professor that they would have had maybe in this small liberal arts college by basically working in that person's lab and now being able to have weekly discussions and, and basically maybe even writing a little report on this and that. Uh, but that's actually now up to the student of generating those circumstances. And and uh, yeah. anyway, I think... That's at least what I recommended here for for my kids when they went to the university of really trying to establish those types of relationships that I think provided them now with a kind of much more valuable education than they would have had if they just pretty much been one of the many students in a big lecture class.
3: So office hours, I, I, I know um, I was big on office hours. I used to go to office hours for all my professors and uh, have a personal relationship. And it was mainly because uh, I was always thinking, like, if something bad in football yep. happens and Brown all of a sudden, doesn't. well, uh, no, but like, I mean, that I, I, yeah, <laughs> probably, but uh, that, that office hour thing is so valuable. And then all of a sudden you get into a situation where now you can reach out to the professor. But um, the other thing I think, too, is sometimes I think education was wasted on us at the wrong time. Because I don't always know like an 18 to 20 year old kid or 22 year old kid has the uh, understanding to know how cool a situation I always think like if I got to work and then all of a sudden you sent me to college at 40 I would be in like w- it would have been terrible I would have been like that annoying guy in the back just asking questions all day and really engaging it and um, but I, I I sometimes wonder well, but if that's, things-
1: that's the kind of student that most professors would love to have and you know and, and my feeling is when a student actually after a lecture find something so interesting that they spend a couple of hours in the library and investigates and then come back and says, you know, I don't think this really fits into what you were saying. I mean that is a kind of interaction that that I f- find too rarely, but but that also shows a student who's actually now done something when we were talking about that, making that commitment of of actually generating something. And that requires energy. And, and and in some ways, if you can feel joy from that discovery process, I think that's a very good indicator here that whatever you're going to be doing the rest of your life is actually also going to be fulfilling and you're going to make a I,
3: I I had a coach uh, make an interesting analogy about um, students being tourists versus being citizens. And like, you know, like uh, I, I, I I forgot the name of the coach, but he talked about, uh, you know, when you come play football or you come to university, actually be a citizen of the team, be a citizen of this, like be invested opposed from just a tourist who just shows up and just eats at restaurants and views the sites. Wears the gear? Yeah, just. Yeah. So like that was like a big thing. They talked about like be a citizen, be engaged, you know, be the guy like on the revolutionary front who wants to drive the change and be engaged in the situation opposed from. Just the tourist who shows up and, you know, eats at the restaurants and goes and sees a museum and then takes a picture and leaves. And uh, that analogy was really powerful because I can think of all the guys that I played with who were just kind of tourists in the thing. They got the shirt. They got the uniform. They took the picture and they never really did anything with it. They, They just were sightseeing. And, uh, I think a lot of people, when they go to college or universities end up just being sightseers and, um, you know, like I led for me, like to the idea of being invested and being, you know, a citizen within it was just really cool analogy. Um, and, you know, that, but that's also, you know, goes back to our, um, you know, dead poet society where he talked about, you know, the idea of cracking the bone and sucking the marrow out of life. And, you know, but that's what a dead poet is. So, I mean, but that that mindset was uh was prevalent and i really saw that difference uh with guys i played on the team and even at places like berkeley where people were just trying to get a degree and get out of there as fast as they can because they were just really nervous of getting exposed
1: And, and that reminds me actually when uh i did some uh tourist uh trips uh in my uh early 20s uh What we always did was to pick out some project that we're going to be doing. So we went to Istanbul and basically we decided to go up to the university to kind of uh, see here and and getting a chance to talk to people that would be really fluent in English and stuff like that. And what had actually happened was that the university was kind of, uh, they, they were having a strike because there had been some demonstrations and some of the students had been thrown in and killed essentially by uh, Islamists. And and I remember talking to these students who basically said here, you know, in about six hours, the police is going to come here and we're going to go to jail for at least five years. And, And that basically sense here of talking to people who, you know, we're actually wagering so much more than I've ever done in my life. I don't know. But anyway, so it's kind of this idea of not going just doing the touristy stuff. You can actually go to a foreign place where you're actually digging a little bit deeper and, and learning a lot more.
4: That, we've been very fortunate to travel the world to teach strength and conditioning. And that's a real game changer for me is when I took the first guided tour out in in Rome in Italy, I was a solo trip, and Luke and I have been walking around. Like we went to Stonehenge, didn't pay for the tour, and just looked at it. Well, it was cool, but big rocks. <laughs> uh, it, it changed the game when I actually had an, a, a PhD, an expert in yeah.
3: the Vatican, walk me through it and explain everything, and it just blew my mind. Dude, one of my favorite places on the world is uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, oh, yeah, yeah I, I I got brought over to work with Stockholm SWAT. And uh, Stuttgart, uh, which is like that, it looks like a big mushroom kind of area. Um, but yeah, no, Stockholm was by far one of the, my most favorite places. And then I sent texts there, yep. and he, I hadn't been there in a couple of years, and they were like, didn't they uh, They come pick you up? Yep, the, I guess the police force, um, <laughs> jo- <laughs> Jopes?
4: Who? Yeah, yeah, uh, y- Yoki. Yoki, Yoki. Yeah, Yoki. yeah, Yoki, he came and picked us up in an
3: armored car. Yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> wow. And, uh, yeah, and and they, and they still talked about me. They're like, "Ah, oh, John's oh, yeah. the best." Yeah. And you're like, "You're like, when were you here last?" I'm like, "It was a couple of years, but we had a good
4: time." I, I didn't see the sun for four days. It was wintertime. Yeah, just missed a snowstorm. It, great sushi up there. <laughs> <laughs> I did have one more question. How have you battled barriers where people are unwilling to expand their knowledge base or not willing to learn? We see that a lot with sport coaches. Just mm-hmm. not willing to learn how to teach kids to lift weights. It's crazy. So have you faced that in academia or in anyone you've come in contact with?
1: Well, you know, I I think most of the students who take my course here on thinking and memory, you know, take it because it's one of the required courses for the psych major. So I always ask them, you know, how many we're actually picking this course because they were really interested in these topics and you know there's going to be a minority of students who who are actually challenge of getting them interested and what i try to do is every lecture is to present them with questions and then hopefully demonstrating that their spontaneous predictions are actually going to be shown to be inconsistent here with our scientific knowledge so it would seem to me that when the, with respect to the coaches, if you actually now had recommended training for somebody and you could now actually see what the alternatives would be, and then hopefully, maybe even having a study that you could cite that really shows that if you do it this way, this is really going to be the impact here on the trainees.
2: And I guess, in similar vein, um, if with these world-class performers who have mentorship or leadership or coaching to help them continually progress and achieve who's coaching the coaches of those world-class athletes or musicians. Do they do those types of coaches tend to continue to seek self-improvement or do they find their system and just stick with it?
1: Now, I think at that level, it's probably pretty difficult to to really get that feedback about what it is that you're doing and to what extent that really helps so if you have somebody who is the best in the world and now you're actually working with that person uh you know uh, it's almost like uh you're at the edge here of what our knowledge is i think at times you there are individuals in sports who come up with a new way of training you know like for example the interval training uh, that basically uh, you know this uh, uh, Hungarian guy came up with that seemed to kind of transform because long distance runners typically wouldn't think of you know doing that as a way of now increasing their speed Uh, but I think just and I think we really don't know as much about what's really going on in these high level performers, and I guess that's one thing that I would be very interested in, especially once they're done with their career, if one could kind of tap into and see here what is it that they thought that they learned, and to what extent you know would you be able to you know a kind of formulate that feedback into something that could potentially help somebody else. I'm using the metaphor of climbing a mountain, you know, the first guy who tries, you know, tries something and fails. But by basically going back and now giving that information to the next guy, you're actually eventually going to accumulate knowledge that is going to allow you now to develop the techniques that you need in order to really be successful. And the more that one would be able to externalize basically what that knowledge and wisdom is, uh, I think the more interesting, and, and if I was committed now to trying to reach the highest level, I would love to get insight into what is it that these guys were doing. And maybe I would find that I would come up with something that is even different from them but that's, you know, the process of science and arts is that people are constantly looking for, you know, new ways of doing things that once in a while, you know, really kind of catches on and people really feels that this was a major advance.
2: So I guess, Anders, as we're kind of wrapping up here, is there anything cutting edge or new age that, that you're looking at with regards to your studies? Or that's well, intriguing. you know,
1: I, I guess I have uh, some some interest, you know, like for example, that idea of of maybe interacting with individuals who would want to document, and especially with videos, so you actually would be able to see how they changed. Because what I find is that with a lot of the elite athletes, you know, there's a lot of pictures of when they're really at the top of their careers but much less really testing and in some ways demonstrating what they couldn't do. I mean, very often when it comes to children that are successful, you want to demonstrate what they can do. But if you're a scientist like I am, I would like to know what they couldn't do. So basically having that sense here of what is it that really changed uh, so other people now would be able to be convinced here that, you know, uh, maybe this is something that would be within my reach as well. Uh, I guess the other thing I'm interested in is more generally here, the professional development point of view. I've talked to a lot of different companies where the basically the sense is, you know, that you get better here for the first couple of years, but then pretty much 30 years, you're kind of remaining at the same level. And I think some of these people are bored. So if you could actually at least provide opportunities now for some of the individuals who are willing to challenge themselves, I think you would have a benefit that people would enjoy it more. And they probably also would be able now to generate more benefits for themselves and for their colleagues and clients and everything.
3: Is there any, um, I guess you could say, like, is there any, uh, technologies or drugs or anything i mean i 'm thinking like uh, to be able to reach deep practice faster, like uh, I remember I got sent these like headphones, and uh, there was I think it was a study out of Harvard where they were saying that the headphones had some like little like fingers in them, and they were in the, the vibration yeah and it was like uh, able to increase neuromuscular pathways or or, uh, pl- or uh, neuroplasticity to increase like to make learning uh, new skills. Yeah. Yeah. Like learning new skills. And I I remember they sent me these headphones. I used them. I never saw a difference, but I always thought that like, uh, maybe with like through the use of technology, whether it be through the use of music or suggestion, or I don't know, maybe, uh, supplements, drugs, whatever it is, is there a, is there anything cutting edge to help us reach that deep practice sooner? Or does it have to be this voluntary kind of understanding?
1: Well, to, to tell you the truth, I, I haven't really seen anything that compels me to believe that you know they've basically come up with something that really is helpful. Uh, so it kind of comes back to this idea that you are the one who need to change yourself. And I think you feel like when you're able now to make the, you know, your highest level of performance and you're able to stretch yourself maximally. So you're in some ways now changing in a way that it's beneficial.
3: That's exactly but, what I was hoping for. Those- because I hate the term hack. Uh, I think that people that, you know, and I'm sure you see this all the time on the internet, everybody's always talking about, you know, there's a way to hack this and I'm a biohacker this. And as soon as I hear the word hack, I usually think of the uh, the real word, which is bullshit artist. So like uh, I saw something the other day that it's like, you know, uh, I can teach you to, you know, hack this and this. And I always go back to the idea of, you know, with with your book, the idea of mastery, you know, takes practice. It takes being like uh, understanding this, um, you know, depth process to be able to go through it that nobody can hack mastery. There's no way for you to, uh, you know, put on some magical headphones or give me this supplement or this drug or this. And then I shall be able to, you know, shorten the progression that it takes to reach this level. And uh, that's good. I was hoping that. uh,
1: (laughs) Well, my recommendation would be to find that, uh, you know, optimal coach with the best uh, record here of helping other people, that that would be my uh, kind of recommendation. And, uh, And I think for many people, and I've actually gotten a lot of emails from people who read the book, who actually now felt, you know, that they kind of, weren't gonna be able to get much better here with their guitar or whatever. And then they start working with a teacher and it's almost like, you know, you open up uh, a new uh, kind of perspective here on what's possible. And, And I think, you know, that idea here that you're really changing the mind, and I think once you understand a little bit what the differences is between a chess master and what they can do here in terms of seeing combinations and exploring them very deep, then you realize that you know putting on some- headphones is really not going to produce that. you know that's just totally unreasonable, you know about as unreasonable as putting on headphones and learning to speak chinese you know I mean some people believe that you know some people just suddenly are able to do it but once you look carefully here there's really no credible evidence here that there's some magical switch here that would allow you to kind of acquire that ability rapidly
3: so not like neo in the matrix where he can just like put in the computer program and teach you not martial yet. arts. not yet not yet we're John. getting there though
2: mm-hmm. so you heard it here folks get a coach <laughs> <laughs> coach needs coach coach needs coach Athlete needs coach
3: and, and a good coach. She already said like virtuoso, oh, yeah. master, somebody that can take you past where you think that you. are really Transformational want to do, coach, opposed mm-hmm. from just some Tra- dude who's to put on headphones.
2: Mm-hmm. Anders, great chat, man. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It, it's been a, a pleasure talking shop with you. I hope, uh, I hope you had as good of a time as we did.
1: Uh, I certainly did, and and you know you know where to find me here if some issue comes up that you good overlap here between our interests so uh, it was really fun talking to you
2: oh thank you yeah, thank you and that's another episode of the premier podcast In Strength, In strength and conditioning conditioning okay. bye okay
0: bye now it's time for you to empower your performance you can find Peak anywhere books are sold or follow Anders work on twitter at Peak the book until next time bye